You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. And I'm your host, Jim Friend. Well, welcome back, everybody. Happy Easter. It is still the Easter season. I hope you had a wonderful Lent, and I hope a wonderful Easter season and Easter celebration. It's been a few weeks since we've been behind the mic here and getting you another quality episode of Advancing Our Church. Life has just gotten crazy, and I'm sure it's been that way for you, but we've kicked into high gear. My clients have been super busy, and when my clients call, my clients always come first. And if you've ever been one of my clients, you know you always come first. But Advancing Our Church is absolutely a very, very, very close second. And I would rather take a short break and make sure that we are bringing you quality episodes and great conversation than to just pump out episodes every single week. Because sometimes, you know, you just got to take a break, circle the wagons and make sure that you're heading in the right path. And you can be assured that when you see a new episode pop up for Advancing Our Church, it's going to be a quality episode and worth your time. And today's episode is no different. We have booked some wonderful guests that are coming up in May and in June. We have Archbishop Blair of the Archdiocese of Hartford. We have my friend Father Tom Daly in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. We have a wonderful panel of diocesan professionals who are going to get together and talk about best practices around diocesan annual appeals in this COVID-19 environment. We have a group of pastors who are going to get together and talk about what lessons have they learned and what are they taking with them into this new 21st century post-COVID, we hope, environments and the lessons learned and, and changes to technology and things like that, that we think that online masses and streaming masses and things that we don't think are going to go away. And that's a good thing. So some great conversations. Oh, and certainly last but not least, my Uncle David, who is a Protestant minister from the Phoenix, Arizona area, my hometown, the place of my birth. And Uncle Dave has a new podcast. Uh, He has a couple books out. We just thought it'd be fun to have him on and talk about the great work that he's doing, his ministry. Uh, He does a lot with personal finances and coaching people and incorporating our Christian faith with the way in which we manage our finances. So I'm very excited to have my Uncle Dave come on to the podcast, and that's going to be in June. So you know it's time to get back behind the mic when your mother sends you a text. And I'm just going to read you mom's text. So I got this just today. When I got this, I was like, okay. She says, podcast is quiet. All okay? Question mark. Just busy, I'm sure. We love you, mom. Heart, heart. Little hands praying. So when your mom sends you a text and wants to know where the latest episode is, then it's time to get back behind the mic and it's time to have some fun, some conversation, and hopefully some shared learning experiences on advancing our church. And so with all that said, it's great to be back. It's great to be with you. We have a great episode planned for you today. So let's get to work. Today, I talk with Patrick Markey, a leader on Catholic financial issues and the outgoing executive director of the Diocesan Fiscal Management Conference. And recently, this year, Patrick was named the Leadership Roundtable's inaugural managing partner by its board. Patrick officially assumes his new role in the spring, and he'll lead the nonprofit to its next phase of growth and service to the Catholic Church. Patrick is a sought-after voice on leadership, finances, and other temporal affairs, 
He has spent most of his career serving the church, developing strong relationships with bishops and diocesan leaders across the United States, and promoting best practices to carry out the mission. Since 2013, he has led the Diocesan Fiscal Management Conference, which is the Association of Catholic Diocesan Financial Officers in the United States and Canada. Prior to that, he led the Office of National Collections for the USCCB, which oversees nine of the 13 national collections held in almost 17,000 parishes annually and raises and distributes more than $90 million per year through targeted grant programs. It was my pleasure to get to know Patrick. I am so excited for the Leadership Roundtable, and I know you're going to enjoy today's conversation. And so, without further ado, here's my guest, Patrick Markey. Well, Patrick, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you here on Advancing Our Church. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. You know, we were talking before we started here. You are uh, living in my hometown of Phoenix. This is like the uh, we've had a series of, of friends now from Phoenix. It's it's great to great to connect with you today. Oh man, Phoenix is a great place. Uh, I've been here for about seven years when I came to work for the DFMC, the Diocesan Fiscal Management Conference brought me here. So I, I know you've done a lot of work recently with people from Phoenix. So I, yeah. I fit right in. <laughs> you, you have. You know, we just hit 70 here in uh, Pennsylvania and it was like, oh, you know, coming out of the caves, people were just <laughs> so happy to enjoy the uh, the warm weather and see the sunlight and, and all that. But I, I know that's Second well, nature to you. <laughs> you know, uh, on the other hand, we got rain last night. So if you okay. want to see happy people, <laughs> walk outside now where we've had, we have rain and the, there's, you know, moisture on the ground because it's so rare. <laughs> so we're very happy to have rain. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, uh, well, welcome. I'm, I'm glad that we were able to spend some time together. Uh, congratulations on your new role, uh, being named the managing partner for the Leadership Roundtable. And, but first, tell me a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your family. Okay. I'm originally from Colorado, but I grew up in Texas. My formative yeah. years were down in San Antonio. And when I was in San Antonio, I uh, met a lay movement called Focolari, the Focolari movement. Mm-hmm. And I got real involved in the youth group. And then um, my faith life just grew and flourished and became mm-hmm. deeper and deeper in my relationship with God and my relationship with others. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, I felt called by Jesus to follow him in life with Focolari. So I mm-hmm. joined the Focolari community, went to New York, did a whole formation program, went to Italy for a couple of years. Then I lived in community for uh, for many, many years with Focolari and ran their publishing house for a number of years. And that mm-hmm. brought me to work with the bishops and some other things that we can even get into in my history. So that's kind of where, what I do. So I'm single. I live a single consecrated life that mm-hmm. um, I, I, a private vows, vows I've taken. Nice. Um, so I'm not a priest, but also yeah. at the same time, I didn't get married. So that's uh-huh. kind of where I'm coming from. So my family is my immediate family with my living mainly in Texas, but then it's mm-hmm. my bigger Focolari family. that's all over the, the country and all over the world. So well, that's there. beautiful. So tell me just a little bit more about the Focolari, uh, and I, I imagine they're around the around the country and around the world. You said, yeah. So Focolari, and for those who don't know, so it's a um, an organization that began in the Second World War. Okay, it was begun by a woman who's actually a servant of God, Kiara Lubick. Her, mm-hmm. her process of beatification has started. She wow. passed away about twelve years ago. And she, with her friends during the Second World War in Trent, the Allied troops, the Americans, we were bombing northern Italy because Mm -hmm. the Nazis were there and and we had to break off the supplies before the invasion. So they found themselves in this situation that was just really desperate. And Chiara had made a promise to stay in the city to a priest because she had a group of young women that she was following and, and leading. 
she stayed and the people that were there were the poor or the injured or the, you know, the people that couldn't leave the city because of the bombings had mm-hmm. to stay behind. And so with her friends, they would go to the bomb raid shelters, take the scriptures with them and read the scriptures. And then they decided that they had to live. These were words of life. These were the words of Jesus. And so they began to live them. And as they lived them, they realized that it was all true. Those things mm-hmm. that Jesus promised happened continually, mm-hmm. you know, so there's all kinds of stories that you read folklore history of the early times but more importantly, what happened was that a community was formed. So those people on the margins, as Pope Francis would remind us, that's who they were encountering and that's who they were going out to. And with those people that were on the margins, they built family, they built community, and they just had a really strong faith experience. And then when the and one of the things that was strongest was when they were in one of the shelters and they were reading John's gospel in chapter 17, where Jesus, it's the Last Supper, Um, It's right before he goes on the cross, and he has this long chapter, chapter, well, from 13 to 17, but in chapter 17, he prays to the Father that they all may be one, as you and I are one, so that the world may believe. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, if that's what Jesus prayed for, then that was the most important thing in his heart Mm -hmm. for unity. And so they gave their lives, they offered their lives to Jesus for unity. And so that war ended, all of a sudden, this whole new life of living the gospel spread throughout Catholic Italy. Mm -hmm made its way into Germany and Switzerland and where Protestants heard about Catholics living the gospel, they were very intrigued by that, mm-hmm. wanted to know more and began also to join in. And so all of a sudden it found itself in an ecumenical work. Mm-hmm. And then from there it spread all over the world, even to San Antonio, Texas, and has been very involved in interreligious dialogue and uh, all kinds of fields. So it's it's pretty large organization. There's millions of people that are a part of it. And some of those at the core are people who live in community. They're called Folklarini. Folklari. Folklari means hearth or family fireside. And so it's where they, at that time in the war, where people had just a, a wood stove in their home, that's called a Focolari. And so when these Focolarini, the ones who bring the hearth and the fire, these young women would go to their houses and bring the, the joy of the gospel to bring love. People's hearts were warmed. And they said, these are the Focolarini, the ones who bring the hearth, the fire, the family to us. And so the name stuck. The real official name is called the Work of Mary. Mm-hmm. because it wants to be a Marian presence. It wants to be, yeah. Mary's main task was to give Jesus to the world. And so the mm-hmm. Focolari's task is not to appear, but just to give Jesus and always give Jesus. And so kind of, that's a little bit about Focolari. No, that that was beautiful. I was not aware of the background and the history. So what a, what a beautiful dedication that you've made of your life and beautiful organization that you're a part of. Is there a, a central kind of hub in um, in the States? Yeah, so they're, the main headquarters are in Washington, D.C., in Maryland. Okay. And so, the, you know, it's a structure. There's an organization. Sure. And then there's different focalized centers, small communities in different parts of the U.S. and Canada. And then there's mainly mm-hmm. it's families that are involved and young people and stuff. So in their mm-hmm. parishes or in their churches. Or- it's wonderful. So, you know, now as I as I look at your career, it's, it's certainly no uh, accident that you have served the church in the variety of uh, beautiful ways that you have uh, through the USCCB and to most recently the Diocesan Fiscal Management Office. Congratulations on, on just a, a beautiful career. And I know that you're looking forward to your next step. Tell us a little bit about what life has been like at the DFMC. Certainly over the last seven years that you've been the executive director, but I'm sure in the last year, as as for all of us, it's been an interesting challenge to say the least. Well, let me tell you first what the DFMC is. It's it's kind of an obscure for those who aren't in inside baseball organization uh, in the church. So every diocese has the diocesan office. And so a diocese has to have a bishop has to have a vicar general, and it has to have 
a diocesan financial officer. So by canon law, these positions, there's some positions that have to be there, and these are three of them. So the diocesan finance officer is, in lay terms, would be called a CFO, a chief financial officer in most cases, or Mm -hmm. treasurer or financial administrator. So the diocesan fiscal management conference is an organization of the professional staff that work in the accounting offices and the finance offices of Catholic dioceses in Canada, the U.S., and the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So it kind of covers all of those dioceses. All the dioceses are our members, and then we serve the staff and, and offer them training and webinars. And a lot of the people that work in these positions are certified people. They have their CPAs, certified public accountants, or they have other kinds of certification. And so I'm a CPA as well. So we always have to have uh, all kinds of ongoing courses and show that we are professionally adapted to what we're doing. So the DFMC offers those kinds of courses, offers certification programs. We have a program called the Certified Diocesan Fiscal Manager. Mm-hmm. So it's a subject area of 16 things that you have to study. A diocese is a very complicated structure. So people come to these positions from the outside world. Maybe someone was a CEO of a major corporation or they were a partner in an accounting firm, and then they come into this diocese because they want to give back or they want to, who knows what brings them there. And then they realize that this is something completely different than involved in again. We have civil law, criminal law, but we also have canon law. And then we have school systems and we have Mm -hmm. hospitals and we have cemeteries Mm -hmm. and we have uh, lots of parishes and we have Catholic charities and we have immigration programs. So what we try to do with the DFMC is to prepare people for these jobs. Mm. And most importantly, we try to prepare them faith-wise for these jobs. Mm-hmm. because to work for the administration and the finances in the church, it's also a ministry because it's also a call from Jesus to participate in the faith life of a community and to do that administrative part of it. And so we really try to help our members to recognize that when we get together, daily mass is an important part of what we do. We offer a sacrament of reconciliation. We always have a possibility for adoration in our meetings. And then we have all of our professional development things, but sure really developing the faith life, understanding Catholic social teaching, understanding why the church takes positions and things in the world, not to be political, but because the gospel, you know, urges us to be, mm-hmm. you know, to do that. So that's what we do at the DFMC. So it's something not everyone knows about. It's a, it's a yeah. difficult name to say, Diocesan Fiscal Management Conference, but yeah. they're really dedicated people. Yeah, I'm honored to work with them. I learn something new every day about my faith, you know, when I meet with them and they're really heroes. Mm -hmm. Kind of like our our medical professionals are the unsung heroes that you don't see or know about that are making sure things run properly. Absolutely. You know, it's funny, um, having worked in a a diocese, a couple different dioceses, and we'd bring somebody on in the development field who had never worked in the Catholic world or a diocesan organization. I I always heard the same thing. It was just completely different animals and, and usually far more complex and more layers than they could have possibly imagined when they uh, when they came on board. And typically a, a, a for-profit, a lot of for-profits, I don't want to speak blanket statements here, but um, maybe a few less layers than what they were used to and a few less, a few different challenges. I don't want to say less, but maybe different kinds of challenges in, in, than, than they've been accustomed to, even if they came from a nonprofit background. I think uh, right. it's it's unique. Um, it's unique. I mean, in the nonprofit background, we work with boards of directors and there are governance mm-hmm. bodies. In the church, we work with the bishop right. <laughs> who has a governance role because of our ecclesiology, because sure. Jesus instituted it that way. Yeah. But then we also have finance councils and we have other kinds of councils. And so there's always um, mm-hmm. work at understanding 
their roles and, and the roles of, of those who are working in the church. And so, I mean, that leads to, you know, the different challenges the church is facing in the United States around the world recently. You asked about, you know, this past year, well, I would say these past years, because we've been dealing with the pandemic and all of the things that come around because of that. And it's been a challenging year for all of us. But I would say we've been dealing with other kinds of pandemics even before this one, other kinds of crises. And so Pope Francis keeps reminding us that, a, you know, a crisis is something that God gives to us also that helps us to see maybe where we're not living up to what we should be doing. And it becomes an opportunity to be more faithful to the life of the church and faithful to the gospels. And so I think that that's where each one of these different crises, whether it was the child abuse crisis Mm-hmm. Um, that exploded in in the Dallas meeting in 2002 of the bishops in the Dallas Charter, or the financial crises that we faced, or mm-hmm. the leadership crisis that we faced a few years ago when you know the Pennsylvania report came out, right? Um, and the different kinds of scandals that have happened around some of our church leaders, and I think all of those have been opportunities in a sense. They're terrible. They're tragic. They also tell us that we have to make sure that that kind of thing can never happen again. Yep. And so the work that we do at the DFMC is to put the structures in place and to tr- the training in place to make sure that our leadership is correct the way it should be, mm-hmm. that our finances are more and more accountable and more and more transparent. Mm-hmm. And that leads to what I'm going to be doing with Leadership Roundtable, where yeah. there's also a work along those lines. You know, the pandemic last year um, highlighted a lot of areas in society that have been problematic for a long time that I don't think maybe we've noticed, whether it's the the endemic racism um, in a lot of our institutions, including in the church. So the struggles that people uh, on the margins face that we weren't really looking at, or those who have different kind of what we might call disabilities or other abilities, physical, mental, they've really been vulnerable to this crisis. Mm -hmm. And so I can say that the church is one of those organizations that have stepped up to help mm-hmm. and is on the forefront of offering assistance. Mm-hmm. But that brings challenges with it as well. There's a lot of financial challenges around that kind of thing too. So we're asked for more services at a time when we're like last year, when we had to close down, uh, we rely on donations for everything we do. So there's all kinds of challenges that we were faced with last year, but thank God a lot of it went well. Mm-hmm. You know, a year into it, we can say that it's uh, it wasn't as bad as we thought it would be. But what I'm focused on is what is the future going to look like? You know, did we learn from those things that weren't being addressed? Did we learn from the things that weren't being managed correctly that led to a lot of this? And uh, how do we emerge from it? Even now, when I talk to some of my friends and colleagues who are diocesan development folks, we talk a lot about, obviously, relationships as being so key to the work that we do. And one of those relationships that we've often spoken about as diocesan professionals is the need to have good relationships with pastors, good relationships mm-hmm. with the entities that in a diocese that we serve. As a diocesan development director trying to get a bishop's annual appeal or diocesan appeal off the ground without the support of the pastors, you're not, you're not going to go anywhere. You, you have to work with them and make sure it works with them. I would imagine it's very similar for a CFO of a diocese who has to work with all these individual parishes and schools on their budgeting and provide services to them, whether they be fiscal or they be through the management of their facilities or human resources or what have you. Did you find that as a topic that uh, the DFMC would address at all? So since you worked in uh, at a diocesan level, yeah. <laughs> you understand the um, tensions that can exist 
yeah. between the central office, if you will, the diocese and the yeah. local reality that there's inherent in any system, there's there's tension. And so also in the church, there's this kind of a tension that can exist um, between the chancery, between the diocese and, sure. and the local churches. And so, yeah, it's something that for our folks, like I said, they're very committed. They see this as a calling and, and they want to really support and help the mm-hmm. local parishes, but they're also accountants. <laughs> right. <laughs> the main job of an accountant is to safeguard assets. Yes. And so we're mm-hmm. taught to safeguard assets and we're taught also to try to recognize where things might not be being done correctly. So we're taught mm-hmm. to be auditors. We're taught to look at a critical eye at things. Mm-hmm. And so often that can, to some people that are more pastoral in nature and that are just providing spiritual mm-hmm. services or, or charitable services, that can be misinterpreted, I would say, or um, sometimes we can come across as a little heavy handed. It's often a a source of tension, but because we want to make sure that in a parish, everything, if someone gives a donation in a parish, we want to make sure that that's safeguarded and it's used for what that person donated for. And we know, and as a development director, you know that the more that there's transparency and the more that we're communicating the needs for us, those funds from from our parishioners, but also how they're used, and we're able to to show that it's been accounted for, it's been transparent, it's been used for what it was um, said. We know that then it, it goes up, giving goes up, because yeah. we have that relationship's been developed, that there's trust and there's a um, certainty. So yeah. when that breaks down, it does a lot of damage. It does not just for the donations, but it it damages people spiritually. Yeah. So from a perspective of of a CFO in a diocese, we don't want that to happen. You know, Mm -hmm. we want to do everything we can to make sure people's spiritual lives are whole. And we know that this is an aspect of it that can how our parishes are healthy parishes. So if all that can run smoothly, then actually we can offer the services, people, you know, for all the sacraments, you know, the parish will be a healthy place where all that can take place and all the charitable works of the church can flourish and Mm -hmm. all the, you know, the welcoming and evangelization of the church will work, but we know that if it doesn't work well, that it could break down all the rest of it. Yeah. So it, there's a tension, but I just hope that people that work in parishes can see the goodwill. Yeah. <laughs> people <laughs> on the dioceses also can recognize <laughs> that they're, they're pastoral people, but they may not be really good at balancing checkbooks, but, <laughs> but they want to do the right thing. So. Absolutely. And Absolutely. we do a lot of training about that. Yeah. We, yeah. we bring in people that can talk about that and help to understand. Communicating and all that. Yeah. We, yeah. I used to work with a person who would say the right message delivered the wrong way is still the wrong message, right? So that's right. <laughs> that's what he would he would drill into all of us at the diocesan level. But completely agree with what you're saying on uh, transparency and financial accountability. As a development director, you you don't go anywhere without that. And certainly, as a pastor, you have to be able to say that to your to your parishioners that you give us. X number of dollars for this project. This is what it's going to go towards. But it's strange that that's a message that's not easy for people to understand, especially mm. if there's a culture of, for different reasons, and not all of them are bad, but there's a culture of maybe secrecy, or there's a culture where a pastor feels that you know their role is not to share things or for whatever reason. And so a lot of it is, is that we have to educate also our pastors to understand different things. But at the same time, our pastors have a role to educate of why they're seeing things the way they do. So I think yes. it's there's a lot of need for communication and, and understanding and, and really assuming goodwill. Mm-hmm. And then when things are not being done correctly, to call it out, to not be afraid. I mean, 
as, as we've seen through the abuse crisis, that we have to speak out. When we see something that's not right, it's not okay anymore not to do something about it. And, and we all have that responsibility. Um, whether we're working in the church or we're just a parishioner in a parish, we have a responsibility to safeguard our children, to make sure that, you know, the properties of the parish are safeguarded. You know, we all have that responsibility. You know, you're, you're already speaking like the managing director of the Leadership Roundtable. So many of the things that you're talking about, I know, are, are, um, are big issues and topics that they've been addressing for years at their, at their annual summit, which I've, I've been attending for years now, and I probably, I mean, it, it, it just comes right out of you, the, 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 the dovetail between the mission, between the DFMC and the roundtable. But, you know, what drew you to this change? What drew you to this, this new mission that you're about to undertake? Well, first of all, I want to say that I love my job at the DFMC. Sure. I really oh, do. And I, I, I just have such admiration for the membership and the people that I've been serving all these years. So it's mm-hmm. nothing that would be against that or, that, you know, it's not something I want to do. In fact, just the opposite. I want to find a way to continue to support even more the work that the members are doing. And so as the executive director of the DFMC, one thing that I kind of feel I don't have it you know, something that's missing, a tool that's missing is a way to meet beyond our membership to solve bigger problems. So my board of directors, every time I'll propose something, well, maybe we should reach out to the HR director because there's different organizations across the chancery. There's an association of bishops. It's called the USCCB. There's an association of um, HR directors. It's called NACBA. There's an association of men and women religious administrators called RICRI. We love all these acronyms in Catholic Church. There's an association of uh, IT people. There's an association of facility managers, uh, canon lawyers, civil, you know, all kinds of things. So one thing that is missing in my world, the head of DFMC, is when there's a big problem like the pandemic or other kinds of things, how do I reach to them? How do we, how do we think about the big problems together and find a way to, to confront them and with, with big solutions? So what I see in the Leadership Roundtable is an organization that has a track record for bringing leaders together, that has a track record for finding solutions to problems. So what I would envision, and you know, so the Leadership Roundtable has been also thinking about what it's done in the past and how it served the church and how it can continue serving the church moving forward. And so they came up with a vision this past year I found very intriguing. I was at the meeting that Leadership Roundtable had in Washington, D.C., right before the pandemic hit, right before everything closed down. And we were talking about financial management and ethical leadership. So a lot of church leaders were there. Uh, the Papal Nuncio of the United States was there. The president of the yeah. USCCB was there. A lot of other heads of different organizations. We were talking about these things, and I found the conversation very helpful. Mm-hmm. And then what came out of that meeting, very helpful. And then the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. And Leadership Roundtable was able to convene the heads of all the national organizations so we could come up with common communication strategies. We could talk about how we were all dealing with the payroll protection plan that the mm-hmm. CARES Act had come forward with. And we were able to talk about some of the financial challenges. And so I saw in that a possibility for that communications on big problems to come up with big solutions. Mm-hmm. And so I found that that was something really intriguing I saw that Leadership Roundtable made that one of their goals moving forward strategically is how can we help the church when these big problems happen, even more than we have been in the past. Mm -hmm. And so I see a possibility to do that. 
and to take some of the things, the Leadership Roundtable has amazing tools in their toolbox that they've come up with that I know help a lot of parishes, help a lot of pastors, mm-hmm. help a lot of the leaders. But there's also other solutions out there as well. As I work with dioceses, I see some best practices that are amazing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if there's not a way to kind of find those and then take all those best practices, all those solutions and make them available. In business world, we call it scaling. Yes, scaling. <laughs> and so I see Leadership Roundtable really wants to scale. So, I mean, I see it as a serving role. So how can we be more and more in service of our pastors, of the bishops? Mm-hmm. And then all those who work for the bishops, like the membership of the DFMC, how can we offer solutions? The DFMC offers a lot of solutions. Mm-hmm. But if I can talk to the HR people and the IT people, if we can work together somehow, Maybe we can even come up with you know ways of, of confronting things on a higher level. I'm moving over to Leadership Roundtable because I see the possibility of maybe providing those kinds of services or at least being available when the church needs those kinds of things. Here's an organization that can convene, that can bring people together, doesn't have an agenda. Mm-hmm. We're not left or right. We're not, <laughs> we're not telling <laughs> anybody what their ecclesiology should be. We're not getting right. involved in the liturgy. We're just people, mainly professionals, lay people, but also clergy, also bishops, also religious Mm -hmm. that have a lot of experience that if we come together, we can offer that to the service of the church. Well, you certainly are correct on that. I I was at the DC gathering that you mentioned last year, right before the pandemic hit, and um, it was a tremendous gathering. We had actually had Kerry Robinson on the show right afterwards. And I think what's, what's what's so impressive and what's so interesting about this moment in time is there are certain certain roads that we've or bridges that we've crossed. Obviously, we are a post Pennsylvania grand jury church. We are now moving, hopefully soon, towards being a post pandemic or a reopening church. There are lessons that we've learned that have been very painful, but I think also have facilitated tremendous growth as Catholics and as a church. And I. I think you're coming on board at such a key moment to kind of take those growth lessons that we've learned and institutionalize them, if you will, and, and help them move to the next level. You know, I, th- I see that too. And I have to say that I wasn't looking for this. It wasn't something that I, yeah. <laughs> kind of like as things can happen, it, things kind of came together and then mm-hmm. this was opened up as a possibility. Yeah. So I have to say there was a lot of prayer that went into it, uh, yeah, a lot of I'm discernment. Sure. I went out and asked a lot of different People, even, um, you know, I mean, some of the bishops, their advice on this, you know, what, what do you see? How do you know, what's, what are the needs of the church moving forward? And mm-hmm. every time I thought, well, maybe this will, you know, make sure that this doesn't happen so I can keep doing the great work. <laughs> I love yeah. the FMC, but every indication was, no, this is, this is an important place to be. I mean, this is, you know, the next step. So, yeah, it's in God's hands all of a sudden. <laughs> without a doubt, without a doubt. Yeah. Do you, do you see certain things that, uh, I, and I'm sure you have, in your own experiences working with individual dioceses, one of the big focuses for the roundtable has just has been, obviously, the, the scandal. And, uh, and they've taken that one head on, and they've made some very tangible recommendations to the bishops. And, uh, and they've been, as far as I've, I've seen by, by most dioceses, they've been accepted. They've been certainly under consideration, you know, in, in different ways. What do you see is, you know, what are some of the next steps on that horizon as we as we try to institutionalize or we try to to look at different governance models, you know, for the church and different layers of accountability? I know the bishops have done so much, certainly different dioceses at different levels, but in in calling laity to more accountability, calling clergy to more accountability, 
training sessions, screening processes for those who work with children uh, and young adults. What do you see as, as what are, what are going to be some of our next steps or some of the next horizons as you could see for the roundtable on that particular issue that's been so powerful and, and lit up, you know, for us over the last few years? You know, I remember uh, watching, I wasn't working at the Bishop's Conference yet when the Bishops met in Dallas, but I watched it on I don't maybe on EWTN or something, or yeah. I don't remember anymore. It's a long time ago. Thinking, boy, you know, this is uh, this is important. This is, you know, horrified like everyone was, but at the same right. time, hopeful that maybe we could do something to stop this from ever happening again. Mm-hmm. And then right after that, I found myself working at the OCCB in their in their publishing office first of all, and so we worked a lot on those documents, and so I worked a lot with implementing new a new office and new ways. So I think. The first thing that I, and that's how Leadership Roundtable began at the same time. And I remember watching, I remember as, a, as an accountant looking at this and saying, okay, if the leadership is allowing something like this to happen, that children can be hurt, it's being allowed or it's not being addressed, or then if that's true, the most horrific thing we can imagine, then there's financial problems. There has to be, right? Mm-hmm. There have to be managerial and financial irregularities or mismanagement going on. So we, I just, you know, you have to recognize that. And I think it, the folks that started leader, Leadership Roundtable saw the same thing I saw. Mm-hmm. And so they said that fundamentally, if there's um, that going on, then, you know, you have to address some of these underlying issues that either stem from that kind of a culture that allows that to happen, or maybe even contribute to it. So the good news is a lot's been done. We have created safe environments for our children. Um, and I think that's something wonderful and needs to be always remembered that that wasn't happening before. Mm-hmm. And as we see now in society, how endemic this problem is, not just in the church, but in the greater society, in the Boy Scouts, in our families, you know, in sporting institutions, the church is also showing a way forward for society when with, with youth and child protection. Um, it's not perfect yet. There's still a long way to go, but at least it's admitted it, it's taking it on and it's trying to create safe environments. So hopefully that'll be a model now that all these other organizations can, and society as a whole can start taking this problem seriously. Mm-hmm. So on the managerial and financial side of it, you know, of course we saw the Pennsylvania report of the grand jury in Pennsylvania. What that highlighted was that it's true that some things were taken care of and we have safer environments for our children, but some of the leadership issues, obviously, and some of the accountability and some of the transparency things hadn't been done. And so that's where a group like Leadership Roundtable, I think, was able to be helpful because what the bishops were discerning is, okay, then how do we set things in place? How do we work with credible institutions and credible? How do we create or work with credible institutions to show that you know we're, we're being responsible to someone or something? And so they had different models that they put in place. How do we involve um, lay people? or organizations that are more secular to help us to do that. And so I know that Leadership Roundtable was very instrumental in helping them to think that through and find ways and find solutions. And then we saw that it was something international, right? So that Pope Benedict and then Pope Francis have taken incredibly seriously and are changing church law, putting things in place to try to stop this from ever happening again. And once again, I know that Leadership Roundtable has had an important role at that level as well. So what, where do we go from here? So what we are determining is that while, once again, a lot's been done, there's still places where more work needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, the Leadership Roundtable convened a group just this past week of different leaders 
across the United States to look at financial ethics. And so from the DFMC, I participated as the executive director of the DFMC. Mm-hmm. And we're talking together to see where are the holes in what we've put together so far? Mm-hmm. Where are we not bridging the gap? And, and then what are the solutions? So for example, what we know that there's an oversight in a diocese in the finance council. So where is the diocesan finance council, which is a canonical organ- institution? Right. Are the people that are on those finance councils, are they properly trained? Do they understand their roles? So that's one question. So we're never questioning the role of the bishop, right? because that's clear, but how can we support the bishop in, in his role? And so that's one of the institutions that probably moving forward, there's more work that would need to be done on that. And then another area is where are things that are being done well how can we learn from that? So say there's a diocese that because of the, all of this has gone into bankruptcy yeah. in order to you know make it through, make sure that the people that were victimized by um, the clergy and, and, and church leadership crisis, how do we make them whole and, and how do we work with them? And so often that had a financial side to it, it often left, in some cases led to bankruptcy. So how do you emerge from that mm-hmm. so that the church can be whole and healed in some or other things like that. And so we said, well, there's a lot of these best practices around. Maybe if there's a way that we can learn from them or pull those together or, or create a database of best practices or, or uh, create you know, some maybe a, uh, a dashboard of key performance indicators so we know where we are in youth mm-hmm. and child protection compared to the other dioceses or where we are mm-hmm. in, um, as a development person in our donations with the others. Sure. And, you know, and then where are there areas where we can be more transparent in reporting? That was another thing that we talked about. So mm-hmm. are we, is it okay not to be transparent in who's donating money? Mm-hmm. And so maybe we need to be more forthright with our donors to say, you know, we understand that you want to be charitable and, and, and anonymous, but it's probably better that we're not like that, that we, that we're very forthright about what's happening, that mm-hmm. we're accountable for what's happening in, in, a, in more stringent ways. So there's a lot that still can be done, and sure. probably we have to do a gap analysis to figure out where those <laughs> gaps are. But I think that we've come a long way, and I think we need to recognize that. Things have been in play, put in place, and we need to recognize that. But um, there's still a lot of work to do. And yeah. um, so I'm hopeful that we can work together and make some things happen. Without a doubt, without a doubt. One of the, uh, one of the goals for the roundtable uh, that was set forth in, in a recent press release is on partnerships. And they've done that incredibly well. And, you know, in my own work and, and working with other nonprofits, you know, sometimes the most powerful thing we can do is, is not to recreate or reinvent the wheel, right? When to partner with an organization that does something very well. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm on a committee for NCEA looking at the viability of Catholic schools right now and uh, working in Catholic education in, over my career. You know, sometimes some of the most powerful ways in which we've been, been able to impact enrollment or impact fundraising has been through these partnerships. I would imagine that the roundtable is looking at that, at scaling that on a, on a much larger scale. And can you talk a little bit about that, some of the partnerships that you've seen that have worked really well, you know, in, in your previous role and maybe some of the partnerships that the roundtable is looking at? I know one of them is through the Catholic colleges and, and some of the ways in which they're, they're impacting education. I mean, it's fundamental to everything the church does is relationship, right? So, right. and you know, we're, we're modeled on the Trinity, which is relationship, a relationship of love. So it's clear that everything that we do is relational. And even on an institutional level, the best way to accomplish things in the church is through, is, is relationally. Yeah. And because it's, it is all connected. So, you know, you just talk about the schools. Um, I remember last year at this time, 
it looked like this Catholic school system as we knew it was done. Right. You know, it was hard to understand yeah. how our parochial schools would come out of this the way that they were going into it, um, mm-hmm. just for all kinds of reasons. And as a lot of pastors, superintendents, and principals and teachers <laughs> know better <laughs> than me. And at NCEA, I know there were major concerns. Mm-hmm. So what happened? So there was ways of coming together, first of all, on a policy level. So mm-hmm. we're in society, we're part of society. The church deals with government entities, whether it's on a national or local level. And so I think one of the first things that happened was to find ways to communicate with those policy people, whether mm-hmm. it was the uh, administration or whether it was Congress or whether it was on a local level dealing, dealing with city governments or counties. Um, so I think that was one of the first needs. And I saw where it was relationships. So there was a lot of need for financial data for the people that were doing that kind of policy work. And so they came to groups like the DFMC and we were able to assist in offering where, how things looked. So they could then go to Congress and say, listen, these are our needs. This is what we see that's happening. Um, this is what our, the situation our hospitals are in. This is the situation that our Catholic charities are in. You know, Catholic charities need support and help because we're on the front lines. It's our parishes. It's our St. Vincent de Paul societies, yeah. you know, that are going to be needing to offer assistance. And in mm-hmm. some locations, the Catholic Church is one of the institutions or maybe sometimes the only institution offering a lot of those services. Mm-hmm. And so um, we brought those um, needs to, for, to to bear, DFMC did, other organizations. And the more that we could be in contact with one another and, and relate to one another, the, mm-hmm. the stronger our message was and the more information we had to share so that we, the proper kinds of legislation then could be passed and the proper types of um, instituting solutions on a local level could happen. Mm-hmm. And so I saw that as a real concrete way that the relationships mattered and helped mm-hmm. to make things happen. So you ask, how do you scale that? Well, at the DFMC, we work together with our dioceses to think continually about scaling, to think continually mm-hmm. about are there areas where they can collaborate more, share information more between dioceses? We have a lot of service providers that work for the dioceses, you know, that either offer insurance coverage or banking, you know, things or software. And so can we help to make those relationships available so that the dioceses can find the partners they need to have solutions? Mm-hmm. And so at the DFMC, we scale those opportunities. And so yeah. I think what Leadership Roundtable envisions, is there a way to even do that utilizing, for example, our universities? Mm-hmm. That once we come up with these solutions and best practices, I mean, we got Catholic universities across the country that all have business schools. Yeah. So how can we offer solutions or offer these best practices or offer these things so that those who are being educated that might work in dioceses or parishes later, or if you talk about seminary formation, you know, that that will become pastors later, are there things that we can offer the healthy education? And I think that's scaling. That's a way of taking what we've learned and what we know and making it available so that more people know about it. Absolutely. So many Catholic colleges also are are now stepping into help trying to help the K to 12 challenges, you know, in Catholic right. education. It's just, it's incredible. It's, it's been wonderful to see. Patrick, it's, it's been great to spend some time getting to know you a little bit. Uh, 
I'll ask you a question that's maybe a little less large scale and, and intensive than what we've been talking about for the last hour. But how's your Lent going? How are you? Uh, are you? How are you preparing for this season of Easter? That's a great question. Normally, it Lent's the time where we we concentrate on I'm going to give up something or I'm going to prepare that way. Yeah. And um, I decided to go about it, you know, a little bit different. I mean, of course, I, I want to have a penitential spirit. Yeah, but I've been thinking one of the focalari practices do is that they do is we take a sentence from scripture and it's called a word of life and we try to live it. Mm-hmm. And last month, um, the word of life in February was that we had to be merciful as, as our heavenly Father is merciful. Mm-hmm. And I took that as my Lenten approach. Mm-hmm. That certainly I've you know I've done my giving up things, but I think I wanted to be more active in this environment. And first of all, to be someone who's living mercy. When I thought about that, what appeared to me was that there's so many relationships just in my own neighborhood that I'm not aware of, or maybe I've, you know, I've, I've, I've passed judgments on those neighbors in different ways, you know, and, mm. and that's impeded me from reaching out to them. And so, like, one of our neighbors is an elderly woman. She's 84. And so she lives alone. And so one thing I've been thinking of, what am I doing to reach out to her during this scary time of the pandemic? Yeah. You know, what, what am I doing? You know, so we, we've been preparing dinner, food to make sure that she has things. We've been nice. trying to find ways um, to her. She had trouble starting last month. They changed the lock on her mailbox. And so she hasn't been able to open it. So it's, hmm. you know, it's helping her to find a solution, but then also helping her to open it since she yeah. has arthritis, you know, so or another neighbor on another side who's had medical problems and she's also elderly. And so to be aware that, you know, a phone call once in a while, how are you? Are you okay? Yeah. And, um, or, you know, there's some that are in irregular situations that you say, well, you know, they have their children out of wedlock or they're, you know, but no, don't pass those judgments, you know, right. be merciful and recognize that, you know, it's, we're dealing with broken families all over the place, including my own. And so it's really been helpful. And it's helped me to focus my Lent, not just on my prayer life, but also on my life of, of my neighbor, of thinking mm-hmm. of my neighbor. And, and I was reading the Pope's uh, latest encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, mm-hmm. and um, in preparation for Lent. And now during Lent, I keep going back to it. And he talks about the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan is the one who goes towards someone who's supposed to be his enemy. The others aren't doing anything. The Good Samaritan is the one who goes to the margins. He's the marginalized person himself, and yet he's the one that's loving. And so that's been really helpful for me in focusing on, you know, my neighbor, who is my neighbor, you know, and then how, what am I doing practically? Actually, is it a phone call? Is it going to the mailbox? You know, be active, do something. Don't just think about it. Well, there certainly couldn't be a better time to do that, especially as, you know, I live in a neighborhood with different different elderly families that are all around us to do a check-in with them to see if there's anything that we can do to help, especially in the wintertime. What a great ministry of, of, way, of living out your faith. Everything that you're doing, Patrick, I'm just so impressed and so in awe of, of the spirituality that you bring to your career and to your vocation. And I'm just so grateful for you being on our show today. It's it's uh, It's been wonderful getting to know you. And I think I know most of your partners, your new partners here and at the Leadership Roundtable, I've no, gotten to meet them or gotten to know them over the years. You've got an impressive, a impressive group and an impressive board that will, I'm sure, support you in, in your new ministry. It's an A-team. It's, I'm impressed. It really is an A-team. Yeah. I will keep you in my prayers as you uh, take off with this new endeavor and, and transition out of the DFMC. But please know that. And uh, I hope that you enjoy the, the rest of the season of Lent and, uh, and have a beautiful Easter. Here's to good times ahead uh, as we begin to open up the doors again and let have people come back to church, right? And 
move past this pandemic. And thank you, Jim. And thank you for your ministry and all the great work you're doing. I really appreciate it very much. Mm, Thanks for having me on today. Thank you. I want to thank Patrick for being on our show today and for sharing his faith and his ministry and and just his energy with us. I am so excited for the Leadership Roundtable. The organization has really taken a huge step forward with the reorganization of their management structure and just they've contributed so much to us, especially over the last few years through the abuse scandal and through the crisis, uh, the twin crisis of the church. I'm I'm so grateful to be associated with the Roundtable and all the good work they do. And uh, I just wish Patrick... uh, God's blessings in his new ministry. If you'd like more information about the Leadership Roundtable, I encourage you to visit leadershiproundtable.org. I'll leave links in our show notes. And once again, to view the full video presentation of this podcast, please visit the show's episode page on advancingourchurch.com. Well, that's our show this week. Many thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and to Pottery Studios for another great show. And if you'd like more information about our show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, and we are a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for over 21 years. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it from me, everyone. Have a great week. Take care and God bless.